All right, people. After uh, getting through episode one, The Phantom Menace, which I enjoyed slightly more than I expected, but still very problematic. And slugging through Attack of the Clones, which is really a painfully bad movie. I figured, what the hell? I made it through this far. I actually went through Attack of the Clones uh, specifically so I could roll into this movie because after, you know, being disappointed but not, you know, totally disheartened by the first movie when it came out in 99 and then totally disheartened by the second movie in 2002. I still got the guts to see this. It's a fucking Star Wars movie. You gotta see it in the theater. Revenge of the Sith. And indeed, this turned out to be the best. I did watch this a few times. It's been many, many, many years. Um, you know, it's it's really the darkest Star Wars movie. You know, not even close, including the original trilogy, which just you know the balls to do that in two thousand five was enough motivation for me. Right, we got Count Dooku, the droid leader. I mean, the politics are just absurd, you know? Just covering up for a week, uh, dramatic arcs and uh, plot and world building. So, part of what sells this movie, and I totally forgot about this till I just read the final paragraph of the scroll going backwards there, the Star Wars font, is this opening rescue, which is totally a feint by the Emperor. It's actually kind of brilliant. So, you know... Effects-wise, I'm curious to see what I'll say. I mean, narratively, yeah, this is a way more compelling movie. The first is an origin story that's not nearly the sum of its admittedly few great parts. The second just never feels real, believable, or relatable. But alrighty, look at this. 2005, mothership, baby. The ships are moving better. There's, there's dents and, you know, and rust and stuff on the armor. The ship, this is exactly the way you want to start it, is a giant space battle. It was missing in the second one, you know? I mean, it's a cliche with Lucas, but you gotta do it. He's still the best in the business at this shit. It, it, you know, with a little better ship design and casting in episode one, and, and not Anakin, you know, flying a ship as a nine-year-old, that battle looks pretty great. This looks better. This feels more like Endor. There's capital ships everywhere, trying to avoid all sorts of fire, giant ships. You're following two guys. These are like, okay, these got to be two bad guys or two good guys. Making it through, you know. I mean, it's just, the second movie is just fucking Ewan McGregor being annoyed constantly with Hayden Christensen as Anakin. And you can understand why. Okay, so he looks older. Let's see if his acting's any better. He's already a little more subtle. And, uh, yeah, and Ewan McGregor's actually grown to an age, probably in his early 30s at this point, where, you know, he, you really buy him as Obi-Wan. A young Obi-Wan. Love the headsets. Totally in line with the aesthetic. All right, now they're back to the X-Wing pilot look, which they never should have given up. They're already starting to look like X-Wings. Up oh, there it is. That lock as foils. Boom. This looks awesome. This is great. I mean, even the best Battlestar battles. But, you know, it, it, it's still transposed. You know, it, it doesn't have the kinetic nature of, of Return of the Jedi. You know, from the back, it's okay. It still looks flat to me. But it's beautiful design. 
Seeing a Battlestar, like, they can't afford the amount of texture and number of ships as they have here. Oh, they kill someone. That's great. Um, but Battlestar always makes it look three-dimensional. All right, you got to have the early conflict between Obi-Wan and, and Anakin. I, they're still using these crappy-looking, uh, you know, <laughs> semi-Cylon right here. Semi-Cylon droid ships. Maybe it's just my computer. I mean, it's a high-def screen. I'm watching it in 1080, but it just looks flat to me. It's possible that this movie was just such a step up from the second one that, you know, I I, I was uh, duped into loving it more. All right, you got to move the cockpit around. That's important with the ships. Yeah, I mean, the opening chase and core scan in, in episode two, Attack of the Clones, is just really amateurish. This at least has uh, <laughs> has a lot of pieces moving, I guess. But yeah, the Serenity battle, you know, or, or the end of Serenity, when, when the Serenity of the ship is trying to get between the Reavers of the Alliance fleets, and, and those two fleets are going at each other. You know, that was this year. It looks way better. Way, way better. Made like a tenth of the amount of money at most. This movie made like 850 worldwide. I think Serenity made like, you know, I don't know, 40 million. I mean, it's ridiculous. It will be interesting to see if J.J. Uh, Abrams preserves anything from the prequels. He doesn't have to. That's what's brilliant. You know, his movies come directly, I mean, a few years, but directly after the original trilogy. So, you know, he doesn't even have to justify ignoring the prequels because these movies technologically and aesthetically are subsumed from a chronological standpoint by the original trilogy. Wow, Hayden Christensen is epically bad. I mean, he's really bad. Curious to see where Natalie is in this movie. Okay, so that looks, you know, like a fucking squiddy bot from uh, (laughs) The Matrix. But more cartoonish and just what are those eggshells he's got over there. Alright, you have to tell R2 what to do. In the original movie, R2 would just do it. Little things. I think this really was geared for, for, this was really geared for like, you know, 8 to 11 year olds, you know. So if you cultivate 8 to 11 year olds starting in 99 and ending in 2005 and beyond, that's millions and millions and millions and millions of kids. And bad feeling about this, that's that's intentional. I have a bad feeling about this. You know, this is, okay, jumps out of the cockpit. Oh, that looks pretty good. Let's see how Anakin gets out. Okay, into the cockpit. R2 jumps off. Same droids, that's the thing. They keep the same droids, they keep the same ship designs. It, it, I mean, this is, by this point, it's six years since you've seen this exact thing. You know, it, it's just such a waste. 
of creativity or a lack of creativity. I don't know which is which. I'd like to not blame the design team. I have to think Lucas was giving instruction for this. All right, so here's R2 doing the uh, hack, which I love in the original trilogies, but they don't even do a close-up on it. It looks so cool. Or it's like a, you know, it's, it's, it's like a key uh, or a keychain in one device that's also a USB drive. Oh, that's uh, CGI R2. All right, this guy. All right, the big scary robot with a big scary face. you got to be kidding me. Does he have a lightsaber too? Yeah, I must have been pretty desperate. <laughs> uh, I think I remember just liking the sort of slight misdirect of this whole opening scene. Okay, so this is exactly from the beginning of the first movie. You know, no change. You know, Christensen is terrible with the lightsaber, unlike McGregor, who knows what he's doing. You know, it's one thing, you know, like in the first prequel to mirror the first original movie, but to be mirroring movies within the prequels, give me a fucking break. You know, I mean, the three original Star Wars movies, the locations and creatures and, you know, various technologies and whatever changed between each of the three movies. The aesthetic changed, the feeling changed. I can't believe this movie made $850 million, um, but that's what Star Wars can do. In fact, that's what Star Wars does, which is why you really can't <laughs> overestimate the possibilities of you know, financial success of the new movie, especially if it's good, or at least crowd-pleasing. All right, so, so here's, you know, he's talking to R2. Oh, there's the jump Anakin, and, you know, R2 just can't hear it inside his head. It's got to be broadcast and give away his position. Ah, oh, here's the key thing, which I love from the first movie. Nice shot there of it turning. Such a cooler idea. It combines like a key card and a USB thing along with a, a physical attachment. But yeah, I mean, they really bring R2 back into, um, you know, like a central combat role, basically. Or at least on these missions. You know, and he's so clutch in all three original movies. Same droid, same weird voices. Whoop, elevator goes up. Why couldn't they just use the uh, the the Neo trick from the Matrix and use their lightsabers to chop the cord? <laughs> there is no spoon. Yeah, and I guess <laughs> there is no spoon pretty much defines the Jedi ideology of power. Um... So, okay, that was a cute exchange. Um, and Anakin really loves R2, as Luke will come to. So, uh, it's nice. You know, they both know he's an instrument, but from a personality standpoint, um, that's what makes R2 so lovable and so iconic. All right, here we go. It's a big misdirect. Um, the only real misdirect in, in the movie uh, or I should say, in the prequel trilogy, that's truly interesting. So you have the Emperor sitting in his throne. They still haven't figured it out after the first couple movies and everything going on that this guy is a bad guy. Count Dooku. 
<laughs> you know, and the the irony that's not really irony, you know, after you've watched this or even as you're watching it is, you know, they're apparently protecting the chancellor. You know, the chancellor sitting in the throne as just his little, uh, you know, prison chair or whatever. I think he looks strapped in there, but you know, it's it's a very on the nose, uh, <laughs> you know reference from an imagery standpoint of that throne in Return of the Jedi. So, they beat Darth Maul in the first movie. Now they're going after Dooku, who got away in the second. The two blue lightsabers weren't afraid to do that. Um, you know, despite all their competitive banter and, you know, any kind of constantly annoying or frustrating Obi-Wan... You know, he he really looks up to Obi-Wan, if not more. Um, so you could see why he'd want the blue lightsaber. And as I mentioned before, you know, you got blue and green and red slash orange. Hard to find any more colors than that other than, maybe, you know, purple. Yeah. <laughs> so you're thinking that, you know, the Chancellor is, uh, oh, this Force stuff's pretty cool. They're throwing, Dooku's throwing them all over the place. So you think... You know, Palpatine is cheering for the Jedi's winning, um, but you know this is the mirror of when you have Emperor Vader and uh, and Luke on the Death Star at the end of Return of the Jedi. You know the Emperor is getting great entertainment out of you know playing with Luke's mind, trying to get him angry, seeing him and Vader fight. Who will survive? Who will be the next? You know the Sith um, apprentice, I suppose. Yep, a lot of side shooting here uh, to mirror the Jedi fights. But just as Luke eventually... Oop, there goes Christopher Lee's arms. Oh, uh, good, good, Anakin, good. Exactly, this is the whole... This is the whole Palpatine kill him thing. You know, Luke throws down the lightsaber at this moment in the... Uh, in the return in the Jedi and says, you know, you've lost your, your highness, but this is, but Anakin does it. Yep. Star Wars PG 13 movie decapitates him. You don't see the head. That's okay. Artistically. I'm cool with that. You see the star destroyers in the background. All right. So once you get used to the CGI look of this movie, it's already starting to look a little bit better. He was an unarmed prisoner. Anakin's feeling bad about it. He can't say no to the chancellor. You know, Dooku looks betrayed at the Chancellor. You find out later he's he's on the payroll or whatever. Um, I guess the idea is Dooku replaces Darth Maul as the as the Sith apprentice to to uh, Palpatine slash Darth Sidious here. Chancellor's fully in control. Got to get out of here. This whole thing's up his plan. There's no time. You know, you have to think that. Palpatine feels threatened by a couple of the more perceptive Jedi, like Obi-Wan. Oh man, this looks great. Right, the the evil master droid that looks different than the others. Not clear whether that guy is full droid or a cyborg. Shooting the cannons, awesome to see this inside. Yeah, this is great, this is great. I mean, this is a huge jump from the second movie. In the period from 1999, oh, look at these capital ships going after each other. 
Um, and the action doesn't stop in this movie, which is what makes it watchable. I mean, this looks fantastic. Battlestar Galactica type stuff. Although in Battlestar, we don't really see the cannons from the inside ever. They look amazing from the outside, and they're shooting real live, you know, explosive physical ordnance. But the uh, the kinetics are similar. Lucas knows what he's doing in space, you know? I mean, this scene is good enough to watch on its own occasionally. I never do, but... So, anyway, so before Anakin says, you know, we're not leaving Obi-Wan, um, and it, I don't know whether they just realized after the second movie that... You know, Anakin was already coming off as too evil, too one-dimensionally evil, or, or at least, uh, you know, morally confused, to say the least. And so, in addition to establishing how powerful he's become, and the bond, both personal and professional, with Obi-Wan that Anakin has now, had to stress all that, this opening scene, show the amazing space battle, but also show that he's not fully gone. Now, he listened to the Chancellor... Um, Chancellor Palpatine to you know, to kill Dooku, who was unarmed. Um, but then he's you know he doesn't listen to the Chancellor. He say leave Obi Wan. He's conflicted. You know we know Anakin has a close relationship with both. And it's the you know the the uh, irreconcilability, if that's a word, between his relationship with these two other guys that that causes the flip. So Anakin's already taking control. Oh man, a pile of dead robots. That's uh, straight from the Animatrix when they're, when they're massacring robots who are turning against them and created genocide. This guy's coughing. Yeah, I'm thinking the the big baddie robot has uh, has some organic stuff going on. It's a cool shield effect. Looks straight from like Dragon Age or an RPG game, but I like it. It's very subtle. Patience. Right, he's <laughs> Anakin's lecturing Obi Wan on patience. The ray shields. Uh, the R two scream whenever he's getting thrown across the room. Love it. And right, this shot again of the of the droids that roll out of the carapace. You know, those ones, the silver ones, look like Cylons. Um. You know, Battlestar had already been going a, a year or two at this point. I don't know if they stole the design. These ships look great. There was something about the initial scene with, you know, with Anakin and Obi-Wan flying around those little flat, but when you see the, the um, pullback shots of the fleece going at each other, it looks awesome. And, you know, this gets right into the story. I mean, there's always an action beat at the beginning in Phantom Menace. It's Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon taking down a bunch of droids, which at the time was great. We hadn't seen that before. Jedi in full power. Um, here, Anakin's reputation precedes him. You're shorter than I expected. Um, right, Grievous, another terrible name. Um, and then in Attack of the Clones, you know, they've got the chase scene through Coruscant, where the, you know, Coruscant itself looks fabulous as this giant, you know, Blade Runner-esque futuristic city, but the chase itself really lacks any feeling of, of movement. R2 creates a distraction, they get the lightsabers, but this is the best action opening scene for sure. Plus there's way more dramatic stuff going on where we know that Anakin's turning to Darth Vader in this one. And I think that 
The second was really a holding action, whereas Empire Strikes Back, you know, from an internal plot standpoint, in terms of the character's journey, was a holding device, but, but you know, there was so much great character building and humor that not only does it work as its own movie, it's considered the best. Whereas Attack of the Clones, not only was it a holding action, and not only was it the worst of all the Star Wars movies, and the prequels for sure, but you don't even need to watch it. You really can go straight from Phantom Menace to here, and you don't lose anything. Nothing. You don't lose anything, except a lot of CGI. And, uh, you know, the, the, the just totally unconvincing love relationship between uh, Portman and, and Christensen. Yeah, I actually wish I was watching this on the big screen. Oh, oh, wow, nice. So Grievous can survive in space, right? Blast open the window. You got to think Jedis can take a lot of this. Um, it, maybe this is a hint here that they don't notice that the Chancellor can survive the decompression for that long, being a dark Jedi himself. Yeah, this took, you know, this took balls to do this in the beginning. I mean, this is almost good to be an end. This is almost good enough to be an ending scene. But they they top it with you know battles on multiple planets later on. Yeah, I wish I was watching this on the big screen. So um, oh, even some more camera movement. So yeah, they realized that they needed to tone down Anakin. You know, it's ironic they toned down Anakin. In the in the Darth Vader movie, and I, and as I was saying before, you know, Lucas, oh, this was the movie that Lucas had in mind, right? This is the one where, where it starts with him and Obi Wan working together, apparently, and ending with, you know, Vader being created, and Obi Wan being involved. Here, Anakin's still the better pilot. That's more believable than nine year old Anakin flying the Canary ship. God, this looks good. Jesus Christ. No wonder I like this movie. No wonder it jumped $200 million worth from 650 to 850 from the crappy second one. We lost something. <laughs> We're still flying half a ship. Yeah. yeah, this is great. You know, if if we had had the Hayden Christensen of this movie in the second one, both in terms of writing and performance... It, it, you know, it could have worked on at least an entertainment level. Um, he's more comfortable, you know. It, it, I mean, here's the thing. Mark Hamill, whether he'll ever admit it or not, knows he's not a grade-A actor. And so he never tried to push it. And, and Hamill only overact. The only Hamill overacting is, you know, when Vader reveals the identity. No, it's not true. But the script called for it. That's what Lucas wanted. He went for it. But in general, Mark Hamill says, okay. I'm not Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, I'm not Marlon Brando, I'm not even Harrison Ford, um, although Harrison Ford wasn't Harrison Ford yet, um, right, the convenient, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> put out the fires with water spouts, um, this is not nearly as good as the, the Firefly, um, I'm sorry, the Serenity crash landing, um, uh, that came out this same year. Hello, looks great. Look at those computer screens. Awesome computer screen design. Um, but you know, it, someone I don't know if it was Christensen just being aware of how bad his performance was that he was you know overacting at the wrong time, underacting at the wrong time. I said that about Natalie too in these movies that it seemed like she was both over and underacting simultaneously. 
at least in the first and the second, though, she really did the best she could with the material. All right, Coruscant during the day. Already looks way better. Totally inconsistent. I mean, there's huge towers, but you can still see the sky. In the second movie, Attack of the Clones, we're on the, they're on that dumb, way-too-long chase scene. Uh, it, you know, they were so tightly clustered, it didn't even look like a real place. Like, it could have been in space. Already looks better. Everything looks better in daylight when you can do it. Um, and look, this is seamless. I mean, they did not build this whole ship. Maybe they did. I don't know. The poster boy. Yeah, Obi-Wan. It's interesting to think whether Obi-Wan making fun of, you know, etiquette being the the poster boy or the pretty boy or whatever um, is a test. You know, whether he's he's really fallen under this guy's spell. Right, today you were the hero. Yeah, this is actually a good move by Obi-Wan. Let's put it this way. If Obi-Wan senses some darkness in this kid, it's a good move to try and humble him by over-complimenting him, but it doesn't have that effect. Also, you know, they just saved the Chancellor. They think Dooku is the Master Sith, and so now they think they've taken out Dooku and uh, Samuel L. Um, They think they've taken out the Master and the Apprentice with uh, Dooku and uh, Darth Maul respectively. Right, so the droid army has been attributed to Count Dooku, who's now dead, which we know is not true. The droid army is this guy's. So I already forget like what Grievous's connection is. It, it, I guess, is Grievous just the general of the droid army that worked under... Uh, oh, Senator Organa. That's I, I guess that's Leia's adoptive dad right leia organa is her name um he, he didn't look like a father of light i mean look at this guy he's obviously a person of color uh which i'm fine with but if you're trying to sell that you know leia is you know this guy's you know daughter or supposed to be this guy's daughter later who cares so here's the hug let's see if they overplay it oh and again Yep, Natalie's breathing. Gotta have your female leads breathing hard in these situations. So it's damsel in distress stuff, you know? I mean, they, Natalie doesn't get to do anything. And you don't have to make her Princess Leia, but all she is is being manipulated politically and then just a love interest, which makes it way less compelling. You know, I, I mean, I, I guess the ultimate indictment of her character, not her, is that... When you rewatch, you know, when you rewatch the originals, if you try and take anything from the series, I've said a few things. Ewan McGregor as Obi Wan is great. Palpatine is is awesome as a manipulator and uh, twisted but uh, charismatic mind. But you're always thinking of Luke as Anakin's kid, you know, when you're watching the originals with Mark Hamill. You're never like, oh, this is Natalie Portman's son. This is Amidala's son. And, uh, you know, oh, here she is with the eyes. It's almost like they're not looking at each other because their chemistry is so bad. You know, it's not coincidental that they cast Anakin with slightly darker hair. They didn't want to go full dark, you know, but he doesn't have the Luke blonde. Um... Yep, here's the making out. At least they don't dwell on it. And it's, I guess it's a beautiful image with the pillars. 
Right, everything's looking better in this movie. That's the thing. I mean, there was there was a jump down <laughs> between episode one and episode two. So, yeah, pretty much everything we've seen so far, including most of the space battle. I mean, JJ is going to make look cooler, you know, and a little more dynamic. But, uh, you know, this is a nice job here. Really is. I just wish they had changed up the droid armies and the whole droid thing. I mean, you've got droids and then you've got clones. And <laughs> Ooh, nice choral music with Grievous. They're really playing them up. You know, in the Avengers, it's always robot armies. But that's the thing, as I always say. If you're going to allow your heroes in a PG-13 family movie to creatively kill a whole bunch of beings, you got to make them robots or aliens. And Lord of the Rings got the closest to reality with the orcs, who, although they are monsters, were practical, and there was a lot of orc blood and orc beheading and stuff. Lord of the Rings, you know, made it even further than these in terms of the graphic nature of the violence. Um, in uh, in the Lord of the Rings and being able to keep the PG thirteen. I think, even though you know we're quote unquote in on this from the beginning, from episode one, that Palpatine is is Darth Sidious, I would have been more restrained on actually showing him. You know, it would be cool to have not even revealed. It until like the very end even though we know that that's what's going on it, at least psychologically you can get a little more in the movie up oh, here we go another love scene she's brushing her hair there's Coruscant at night looking better he's lusty he's obsessed with her and that's what i do like like he i actually could see hayden christensen being in like a b b minus horror movie as like the obsessed you know killer you know who who's killing everyone in his way to, to to take this woman violently or something I, they didn't have to go that extreme but as i mentioned attack of the clones i would have played this so much differently i would have had him be obsessed with her through the second and most of the third and her resist him and not even be interested in him you know she's oh i'm so in love doesn't seem natural, actually. It, it, it would have been cooler that she would give in sort of mid-late in this movie one time and be like, uh, I, you know, this isn't right, but just this one time. Not a rape, not a rape, but a one-time thing because she loves him on a friendship level and she just, you know, she's drunk or he, he just uses the force powers on her. That would be cool to to do a, uh, to do like a force-powered rape um, Sorry, guys, this is an adult podcast, but I'm always trying to think of more creative ways for these, you know, on-screen relationships. So now he's having visions. This is like Neo having visions of Trinity dying. It's not a trope from the Matrix. It is just a trope, but that's okay. Oh, he's got the mechanical arm. I totally forgot that that happened in in the second movie. Um I, I took qu- quite a break from the second movie, and, and the thing is, when I did a commentary on the second movie, it was like the third time I'd seen it ever, and I didn't remember anything from my original viewings, and I already forget most of what went on there. Once Obi-Wan goes to the clone world, and you have a bunch of Samoan guys as clones, I, I was just lost. I mean, the shooting in this is gorgeous. I mean, Lucas, you know... <laughs> Again, this love scene should be over. But in general, at least from a technical standpoint, Lugia stepped up his game. 
Alright, so Natalie Portman here looks like the 2002 Natalie Portman, you know, which both look way more adult than the young woman, you know, or, or, or even girl from the first one. So Natalie Portman is almost exactly my age. She was born in June of 1981, I believe. I was born October 81. So when this movie came out, her and I were both 24, but she was probably 23 when she filmed it. Which means that when she filmed The Phantom Menace, which came out in 99, she was probably 17 during that filming, which is crazy. Right, it's only a dream, you know, like Neo not telling Trinity. Um, and, and in both cases, <coughs> in both cases, sharing what was in the dream you know, with the, the the women that they're dreaming about. Oh, he does say it. You die in childbirth. Alright. Okay. Yeah, only so, I, I, you know, I speculate in, in Matrix Reloaded, you know, Neo says, I need you to stay out of the Matrix and sort of the final action, you know, scene in that movie. She says, why? He just says, please, for me. And she says, okay. And then the mission goes wrong and Trinity has to go in and he saves her as she's dying and she says, I'm sorry, I had to. And Neo says, I know. He realized that, you know, it, it was faded or whatever, even though Neo's not thinking in those terms quite yet at that point. The end of Reloaded. So, you know... Neo telling Trinity, not sure would have kept her out. You know, the facts are the facts. She can promise to stay out. She can even promise to stay out knowing that he's, you know, prophesizing her death. But that's the whole idea. She's sacrificing her life no matter what. I mean, if anything, that would make her be like, nope, I'm coming. You know, I'm not sorry. I, this, is one, uh, this is one promise I can't keep to you. Okay, here we go. This is the confession. Yeah, yep. I mean, Christensen steps it up. He's way more subtle. The the writing is better. Someone. Yoda's trying. Yoda's constantly trying to figure out what's going on with this guy, which you know it does. It does help with the. Uh, you know, Yoda's hesitation to work with Luke. <laughs> Obviously, to say the least, that all this is happening under Yoda's nose. So he says they're about someone. I think it's about him, but it's about Darth Sidious. Rejoice rejoice for those around you who transform to the force. Right, he's saying death is, isn't the end. It's just the new path. But like, I don't know if I finished this thought before, like Luke, Anakin, you know, sees force... Mostly from an offensive standpoint, as things he can do physically. You know, Luke learns uh, almost on his own with minimal training, with minimal training from Obi Wan and Yoda. He learns that the important parts of the Force are spiritual, and that's how he turns Vader and wins that particular war. Anakin never learns those lessons, and you know, and as things get progressively bad for people that Anakin professes to love in this movie, you know. He does what Luke starts to do at the end of Return of the Jedi, which is go, you know, super angry, violent. But Luke quickly comes out of it when he realizes he's falling into the Emperor's trap, drops his lightsaber, you know, gets the lightning storm to the body from Palpatine. And then Vader throws Palpatine over the side silently, although now he says, no. Um, but yeah, so, you know, it, it's all mirrored. But, but the mirroring in the first two prequels 
was so heavy-handed. And, you know, this one, they could just tell the story. I mean, that's the thing. The first movie was the origin story of how they found Anakin and having a dark side even as a young boy. The second was just a holding action. I mean, they really could have made this two movies. There was no way that was going to happen. But you really could just watch the first and the third and not lose absolutely anything. In fact, I think that's been my approach in the past, although it's been many years since I've seen this. Wait, what are you? So the manipulations continue. So they talk about in the other prequel trilogy movies, you know, the specific relationship between the Jedi Council and the government or various governments is difficult to discern. Right. So he's appointing Anakin as his personal assistant. Um, the, you know, it, 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 the Jedi Order, you would think would be opposed to anything like this. Like, yes, they can advise the government, they can even fight some of the government's battles, but to let one of their guys, you know, be fully in the pocket of the Chancellor, who they barely even know, and whose motives they're not questioning, that's the other conceit. But, is you know... Okay, right, so they are disturbed by this particular proposition. But it's it's their hubris. I mean, they've been in power for like 2,000 years since the Dark Sith really controlled things. This is a mirror of Phantom Menace, where they're first testing young Anakin, and they're trying to make him angry and impatient. Right, it's unfair, it's outrageous. Oh, this is him being... Right... Yeah, they're letting him on the council, but they're not making him a master. Yeah, I mean, I can understand... <laughs> Obi-Wan shaking his head. I can understand that the Jedi, even Yoda, could not read into Darth Sidious, you know, or P- slash Palpatine's uh, brain because of how powerful he was with the dark side of the Force. Um, but they're, <laughs> you know, they're continually um, censoring... Uh, Anakin's thoughts and motives and, and desires, but they have him on the council and they're letting him be the assistant to the chancellor. You know, it's possible they think that, you know, as dangerous as it is, maybe Anakin, even unwittingly, could reveal some information about the chancellor. And that's part of the plan. So this is the, right, they're setting up the final battle. All right, so we're in the second act, the first act. The first act is the giant space battle rescue scene. Right, and and then the this is the Natalie Portman love story mixed with him upset that he can't be a Jedi Master even though he's on the council. Okay, right, okay, here it is. Yep, uh, yeah, they do address it. Council doesn't like politics interfering with Jedi affairs. So, yeah, they're using him, they're putting on the council, right? That's the thing. I mean, being a Jedi Master is the ultimate, you know? You can be on the council, you can be an advisor, you can even be a spy to the politicians, but he's not ready to be a true master. Right, here's the spying. Yeah, that's, you know, not all the writing is spot on in this third prequel, but the setup of the plot, I mean, look at this shooting. It's almost like a different trilogy. It's pretty amazing. Right. 
an off-the-record assignment of him to spy on a guy they know he's close to. And we know he's conflicted because Palpatine, and they don't stress this enough, Palpatine is from Naboo, which is where Queen Amidala is from, Natalie Portman's character. So he's conflicted because he does agree with the Chancellor's notion that they need a strong centralized government. And and this goes back to the Jedi's being assholes and hubristic and arrogant. And Anakin is calling them out on it. Anakin's right. You know, with one hand, they're rewarding him. With the other hand, they're punishing him. With the third hand, they're twisting him and using him, asking him to be a spy and a traitor. And so, you know, again, you didn't even need the second movie to build up the dark side in Anakin. Yeah, uh, Yoda and Samuel L. are on to it. All right, so they're still with the Paul Atreides chosen one thing. Yeah. Here it is. Prophecy could have been misread. Yep. Even in Dune, I mean, you're convinced at the end of the original Dune book that Paul Atreides as Muad'Dib is the Messiah, but in terms of what the Bene Gesserit order of you know, super secret, super powerful women, you know, witches or whatever, who are really controlling things behind the scene. Uh, the Messiah that they were trying to create ends up, you know, coming in the form of the twin children of um, Muad'Dib, who are born with full knowledge and powers of the universe. Right. Uh, okay, so Natalie Portman says we may be on the wrong side. Yeah, she's... So, uh, the Republic is the evil, there's no real democracy, sounding like a separatist, this is the whole, you know, states' rights versus federal rights. Yeah, he's treating her horribly. You know, he's taking the Chancellor's side over hers. I mean, that's just the sway of the dark side. Don't shut me out. Uh, Another Trinity line. Hold me. Yeah. This is an interesting comparison whether the Neo Trinity love story versus this love story. I think just because of Carrie Ann Moss, that other love story. works better even during the cheesy moments um and because it's implied more than rubbed in your face up until the end of revolutions where you know they start acting out of characters being lovey-dovey with each other and their long horrible death speech uh, trinities that is Uh, a lot of practical aliens looking good um, but yeah, I mean, the fact that, that Palpatine and, and Padme or Amidala are from the same planet, they really just don't talk about. Why isn't she the one to talk to him? Is he blocking her out? Okay, this is a great scene. Um, it, it's like a, you know, Star Wars-y version of uh, Cirque du Soleil. Weird imagery, weird music. And this is the, this is the beginning of the, this is the true beginning of the master-apprentice relationship right here. The way they frame it, he's kneeling, you know, the the Chancellor's looking down at him. 
Palpatine's planting scenes about the council being, you know, corrupted or just weak, um, playing to Anakin's ego. You know, I guess that's the idea. Luke never has an ego, you know? I mean, Luke does have a better heart than his father, obviously, but Luke does not have an ego. Uh, He's impatient, he gets frustrated, he's confused, you know? But all the things you'd expect in someone in Luke's position, but... He doesn't have the narcissism and, and egotism uh, that's, that Anakin has. So, the Chancellor Palpatine here, you know, I mean, he's working his magic, to say the least. Um, but for some reason, this stood out for me as... Uh, as the best of the exchanges. I mean, you know, Ian McDermott as, as Palpatine is constantly trying to bring out good acting. He's looking right in Hayden's eyes, trying to bring out good acting from Christensen. And, and Anakin's very understated here. Someone must have given him some, some uh, coaching, um, some acting coaching or acting lessons between the second one and this one. Maybe he's just older, had time to reflect on it. You know, and again... Like with Natalie Portman, if you have bad lines and it's just not going to come out well, then what's the best thing to do? Underact. Always better to underact than overact. Look a little wooden, a little robotic, rather than just ridiculous. And he does play the the uh, conflicting emotions on his face here pretty well. Um, okay. Your early teachings, all who gain power are afraid to lose it, which is true. And again, the best lies are, are lies with half-truths, and, and that's how Palpatine operates. Right, the Sith and the Jedi are similar. Quest for greater power, and that is one of the downfalls of the Jedi, is their, you know, basking in the rays of their power and, and stability, uh, you know, over such a long period of time. Through flexing muscle. You know, that's the thing. I mean, Anakin and Luke have to learn that the physical uses of the Force are, are, you know, as Vader says in the original Star Wars movie, New Hope, he says, you know, the power to destroy the planet is insignificant compared to the power of the Force. So, you know, even this guy, when he's Vader much later, realizes that point, although he doesn't act in such a way, constantly choking people out and killing people, um... The Jedi have to learn that lesson, too, which is why the Obi-Wan and Yoda um, in the quote-unquote future from this timeline, or in terms of the original trilogy, when we first meet them as much older, are are far, far more humble and careful um, than they are here. To create life, I miss what he's talking about. Oh, right, this is why I love this scene, because what's great is the... Pa- What's great is Palpatine is telling tales, uh, romanticized tales, of the Dark Jedi. It, but his performance is such that he could just be very knowledgeable, but he could be a Sith, which he is. But from Anakin's perspective, you know, he's being seduced by this guy who claims to love him. But the key is that Anakin's had dreams of, you know, uh, of his love, Amidala dying in childbirth and that you know the sith have a way of bringing people back to life which i believe yeah look at mcdermott's so great here 
Um, it, it, I think this is a lie about bringing people back to life. It's just the manipulation. I can't remember if Anakin has told him that he's foreseen uh, Natalie Portman's death. Uh, but it doesn't matter. This guy can read it right on him. And he's looking away from him during the most intense parts, you know, to make it seem casual. Right, he wants to become a necromancer. I can't remember if they use the word necromancer in, in fantasy terms. In fantasy terms, uh, you know, bringing back dead bodies, it's a specific type of sorcerer. Okay, this is the Wookiee plan, I believe. Could be wrong. You know, the tree hut. They don't even try and go full Ewok, which I like. Yep, here are the Wookiees. Gotta love it. Yeah, this movie's epic. They do the right thing. They realize that the the dramatic uh, punch just wasn't going to be there. So you have some really key dramatic scenes, like the one we just saw with Palpatine and Anakin, mixed with a lot of movement and action, even when they're not fighting, just constant effects and spaceships flying all over the place. Again, they preserve the old school hologram. Here we go. Right, Chancellor wants Anakin to lead the campaign. Samuel L. Okay, so Samuel L. here is actually very Nick Fury-ish. You know? Good, he, he's a good guy with an obvious dark side, bad temper. Um, what did they agree upon? That Anakin's not the guy to go? You know, I mean, for the Chancellor not to go to the council... All right, so this stormtrooper here in the green, this is totally CGI. This looks like it could be from the Clone Wars or whatever those stupid animated series are. Um, well, they're not stupid. Actually, people say they're quite cool. But um, sorry if that got loud there. We got the Wookiee droid battle. All right, so we're 49N. We've already had an extended space battle. Here we get the Wookiees versus the droids. I forget how they, uh, I forget how they frame this. How they set this up. The water, the spinny water, you know, boat ship things are cool. Um, Are there practical Wookiees? I mean, the ones jumping around there. Whoa! (laughs) Yoda almost gets hit. I think there were a few practical Wookiees there. CGI Wookiees are actually easier to do than like CGI Yoda because they're just big, <laughs> flea-bitten fur balls. On the, on the Leia who says that. So, this is Anakin apparently admitting admitting his sins. Apparently, this is Anakin admitting his sins of being arrogant. Um, and Obi Wan buying it and saying he's proud of him. But Anakin's really, I think at this point, manipulating Obi-Wan even more. At this point, Anakin's manipulating Obi-Wan even more than usual. Now, he's, you know, butted heads with Obi-Wan since he was a little boy. But now he has specific ulterior motives for this guy not to look, you know, even harder into into Anakin's mind. Goodbye, old friend. Okay, so I guess this is the last time they see each other till the lava battle at the end. 
Yeah, I mean, look at that look from Christensen. I'll give it to him. He's evil for a second, and then he smiles because he likes Obi-Wan, and then he's looking a little ambiguous. He's he's working hard. Um, I'm going to have to uh, revisit. My, I mean, the problem is I've already done the commentary of the first two prequels, and I've mentioned about how terrible Christensen is going back to pre-Bizzlecast, but... Uh, I will give it to him. In this context, with these amount of characters um, and, and you know actors like Samuel L. and Ewan McGregor, they, they pull back on Anakin in terms of screen time from a dramatic standpoint, which is smart. Right? There's the proto-TIE fighter, the proto-Star Destroyers. Technologically, they build this up pretty nicely. Oh, right. I mentioned this in the first one. This is such a great concept. That, you, you know, you would need an extra apparatus for a small shuttle to go into hyperspace. Um, and uh, and then you could detach from... Um, then once you reach the new you know planet or solar system, your shuttle, which is more maneuverable, can detach from uh, the uh, jump apparatus or hyperspace apparatus. All right, 23-year-old Natalie Portman. Oh, there's a jealousy thing going on. I forgot about that. Right. <laughs> yeah, Anakin gets so irrational that he starts suspecting jealousy even from Obi-Wan. Okay, so forgetting about the fact that Natalie Portman has been relegated to just a love interest who doesn't really do anything but listen to him and is very ineffective at understanding what he's saying or giving him real advice. And this is where I want more. Yeah, he can't resist, especially after hearing about bringing people back to life, thinking that he can bring Natalie back to life after childbirth. I'm not sure I would have gone with the prophecy all the way. You know, He could have just said, I see you dying and not have it been childbirth, but I'm okay with it. I won't lose you. I'm not going to die in childbirth. All right, they're, they're talking about the wrong things. They're not even looking at each other. God, their chemistry is terrible. I could see why people resented Natalie, but if you watch Natalie Portman, it's like 17-year-old Natalie Portman in the first prequel, 99. I mean, she's so great. She does everything possible to relate to young Anakin. I actually buy that relationship more than this one, even though it was forced and not very well fleshed out. All right, shuttle looks great. It's what is he on Wookie Planet now? We've got some dinosaur skeletons as the shuttle bay. That's a cool touch. Uh, what what does Obi Wan think is going to happen here? All right, who is this guy? Remote Sanctuary. This guy's fully CGI. Should have gone practical here. So he's trying to set up Shap here for the search for Grievous. So those kind of aliens you got to do. CGI. Muck up the ship, make it look dirty. Easiest way to make a ship look real. Yeah, Joss Whedon understood this implicitly. With the Firefly ship, Serenity. 
The close-ups on this guy's face suggest there's some non-CGI going on. Um, I will give Lucas that. Look, it was the third of the three. It was 2005. I mentioned earlier, you know, starting with 99 with the Matrix and the first Star Wars movie. And then you had the Lord of the Rings movies and the other Matrix movies all between 99 and here with two, uh, two all the way here in 2005 with Revenge of the Sith. I love that dinosaur thing. Totally impractical, but it looks great. This is a visual treat. I mean, the, <laughs> the CGI in Attack of the Clones is just boring, and the drama is even worse. We got dynamic movement. This part I re I remember watching, and you know, well, this particular uh, riding beast, you know, isn't flawless. There's so much texture, so much detail. Um, looks like a dragon. Even the way the neck and the mouth move around, uh, it's like you know, it's like riding a giant Komodo dragon. I remember how cool that was. Always fun to ride alien beasts. So here's the politics, the Mustafar system. I think, you know, Lucas obviously overthought a lot uh, about these movies. Um, but the obsession with politics, that, that got even more intense after the first movie, when it was somewhat more easily digestible. Is uh, um. Okay, so what is Obi-Wan discovering that this is happening under his nose on the planet? Jedi really don't know what's going on. They're single-minded, even Luke. Leia is so much smarter and more capable and has more skills than Luke. You know, that's what gives them their power, is a single-mindedness. You know, they have to understand complexities of situations... <laughs> but they also have to be able to do this. And it's the complexity of Anakin um, that corrupts him and that almost corrupts Luke. Blue lightsaber, it looks great. And this was a brilliant move from uh, Lucas, you know, to, to, to really make this one more about Obi-Wan than Anakin in terms of screen time. You know, Ewan McGregor is just so much more appealing and compelling. Why doesn't he just cut off this guy's head? You fool. So this, so this weird cyborg creature has a lightsaber and has been trained by, uh, by Dooku. You know, it'll be, there's some hints with the trailers for the new, um, uh, you got the four lightsabers verse one. He already beat Darth Maul with the double-sided lightsaber. And this is exactly what you do. You just make a giant, you know, spinning lightsaber, uh, you know, grinding gear or whatever. This looks cool. So, you know, it's we see John Boyega with the lightsaber. It, it's hard to know... Um, you know, where J.J. is going to go about, you know, can people use lightsabers effectively that aren't Jedi? So you get rid of one. I have to move the screen closer. Hopefully the fan won't be distracting. I think we're good to go. 
Yep, everyone else is, is standing and watching as Obi-Wan cuts off one limb after another. Tis but a flesh wound. Ah, it was all a faint. So the stormtroopers in orange, if you're going to make them like proto-stormtroopers and, and, you know, differentiate them from the original trilogy one, it's not a terrible thing to do. <laughs> they also die quite easily, even with the heavy armor. That's the part that never made sense. Close up on the eyes, he looks like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Boom. I don't know if they switch cinematographers, but it's just way more creative shooting. I mean, this is what a Star Wars adventure movie may look like. And while, you know, despite the fireworks of constant special effects, doesn't quite reach the original trilogy, um, it's hard to know what J.J.'s influences will be, but, you know, this, this feels... So, like, the first third or half of... Phantom Menace through the Potteries did feel like a movie in the Star Wars universe, and and now we're back to it after after Attack of the Clones took us uh, maybe to a galaxy far far away, but it wasn't the Star Wars galaxy. Yep, oh, lose the lightsaber. You know, plus the the CGI stormtroopers. I mean, they. <laughs> They move on paper more like what stormtroopers would move like. Um, meaning the practical stormtroopers from the original trilogy, the armor was just so big that they were, you know, they couldn't really run around. Um, I think, you know, J.J. in the new Star Wars movie will be able to maintain the, the sort of the thickness and and uh, just coolness of the stormtrooper armor, but allow them to move around in a more realistic way. Dark side of the forest surrounds the Chancellor. So they're already starting to figure it out. The Jedi Council would have to take control of the Senate, right? So exchange one dictatorship for another. Yoda knows that's a slippery slope. And, and, and you know, and politically, the Jedi Council is it, it, clearly the most interesting thing because... They talk about senates, they talk about executive powers, you got, you know, queens, all stuff that we're used to, but the Jedi Council, unless, you know, there's something we don't know about, which is possible, um, in terms of our world, is a, you know, a third or fourth or fifth branch, depending on how many branches you, uh, you delineate. The manipulations continue. I wish I knew. He says, I'm being excluded from the council. He's on the council. They're giving him a big responsibility here. I, yeah, I mean, they, they don't even briefly try and sell that he's maybe thinking about actually spying on this guy, you know? It's like, they couldn't have picked a worse spy for the situation. And so the sort of ping pong effect here, my, my friend Aaron, who I did the Ex Machina commentary with, uh, talks about how um, 
Caleb, nominally the main character, a sweet, young, smart, but naive boy in a computer company, is basically a ping pong that keeps going back and forth between Nathan, who owns the company and is trying to manipulate him and his quest for AI, and the AI herself, Ava, and they keep serving him back and forth, and that's what's going on here. The difference is, in Ex Machina, the many layers of manipulation bordering on conspiracy are, are you know, are, are quite apparent, at least by the end, from both sides. In the Jedi Council... Here we go. The Jedi Council at least has good intentions with this particular ping pong. They just served it to the wrong guy and used the wrong ball. Yep, this is it. This is a hard sell. You got to join me and I'll save your wife. You know, it's an interesting decision that his decision... Ooh, here we go. I'll get back to this particular plot decision. Anakin is really thinking about killing this guy, Christensen. They also know how to shoot him better, his hair's better, you know, it just, it all works better. The, 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 the camera angles, the multiplicity and creativity of camera angles in this movie is better even than the original trilogy, I would say. This is, I'm, uh, what's, all right, I can feel your anger. I don't know if he says, strike me down, but that's like, with Luke, you know, I want you to try and strike me down, even though, you know, you won't be able to, or think you won't be able to, in order to bring out the dark side. Oh, no, they do sell it. Okay. And here's the thing. Again, half-truths, partial truths. Can't trust the Jedi Council. They've admitted that they're headed down the slippery slope. Right, so I'm not sure I would have had his slip to the dark side be, you know... I mean, it's not based only on his, you know, vision about Padme dying and his, you know, apparent love for her, but it'd be more subtle, I guess, to just be seduced, or maybe it'd be less subtle. I mean, that's the whole point with Luke, right, and the, and the Return of the Jedi, is what finally makes him angry and briefly go after Vader and the Emperor is seeing his friends, you know, die or, or the potential of them dying. There, you have to have that personal connection. That's what makes them, you know, slightly more complex than the average Jedi who don't appear to have any personal motivations whatsoever and rely on great acting by Ewan McGregor and company. Yeah, I got to watch this on the big screen because <laughs> my computer, this looks pretty great. Uh-oh, he's got the the uh, laser staff. Yeah, uh, you know, not, <laughs> not as effective as a lightsaber, but it's cool, you know. I mean, in order not to just slice this guy in half, we get hand-to-hand combat, which we never see, you know. Uh, that was a pretty good grab there with the CGI arm. And now he's he's pulling at something. He's obviously not pulling at the robot's, you know, guts there. Uh, but he's holding on to something. Yeah, Ewan, Ewan McGregor was way ahead of his time in order of... Ewan McGregor was way ahead of his time, I guess, If going back to the f- first prequel in 99, in terms of his ability to, for the most part, make the interactions with CGI characters and environments um, believable and real. Ooh, uses the blaster. That's quite a blaster. 
It's easy again. He's on fire. Yeah, they know how to do fire. This is a cool death. All right, and so and so you know he weakens this guy by cutting off his some of his arms, his but the flesh wound. Uh, uses other beats to kill him. There's just so much more creativity here. So uncivilized. There it is. That's it. Right. You're going, oh my god. A blaster with a Jedi. It, it's like blasphemous. And, and so they had Obi-Wan comment on it. That's great. Oh, Anakin reveals this to, to, uh, Windu or whatever Samuel L. is called Sith Lord. He knows the way of the Force. You know, it took Anakin to discover it. It's so obvious. But it's only, it's only because he revealed it. It's only because Palpatine openly revealed it. Palpatine's been able to hide it from the rest. So, again, they're concerned about the Jedi Council. Or the Jedi Order. Fear clouds your judgment, straight from the original trilogy. You know, I talk about with the midichlorians, um, the midichlorians in episode one, in principle I was okay with, I just hated the the particular exposition of, you know, the complexity of the Force, and they really wasted the opportunity in these three movies to explore different aspects of the Force that weren't either A, you know, pseudo-scientific, like the midichlorians, or B, not just using the same cliches about emotions and desires and fear and so forth. I mean, it's six movies of that. And while I'm, I love and I'm interested in Buddhism and Taoism, which informs all this philosophy, Lucas just doesn't go far enough. He makes a political argument way, um, you know, he makes a political aspects f- far more. Uh, uh, I mean, seemingly complex. They're only complex because they're contradictory, and you know, not really sure what's going on. But um, theme-wise, he, he seems to be more interested in political themes in these movies, which is fine. And again, if you don't bring in the middle chlorians, leave the force mysterious. I don't know if we're going to get any specific force talk uh, when it comes to uh, uh, the Force Awakens, Episode Seven, the new Star Wars movie by J.J. Abrams. We shall see. Of course, can't looking great again. The council looks better. I mean, this is really yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, even if we could accept that there was a jump between ninety nine and two thousand two with Episodes one and two technology wise, which there wasn't, I don't think. Definitely a big jump in the three years from O two to O five to this movie. Course can't really feels like a place it never has yet before. Yeah, and this is the right, and he's crying, they're not saying anything. This is what you have to do in love stories where you know, the expositional romance doesn't quite work where the dramatic chemistry isn't there you do scenes of just him crying and you know just non-verbal stuff and when the neo trinity love story worked as my buddy adam tuck points out um and which i fully agree with in in the uh matrix podcast you know it works because of what's unsaid here we go what happens here does he kill all these guys i can't remember All right, yeah. Oh, all oh, right, the purple lightsaber. Yeah, baby. 
Are you threatening me? We've got four Jedis with lightsabers. Yeah, the, the, the Jedi are the overseers of the Senate in addition to the protectors of the galaxy. You know. That was clearly CGI. Alright. Kills one. Kills another. He's gonna kill this guy soon, I'm sure. They had to kill Samuel at last, I suppose. You know, I mean, Ian McDermott, he's doing some fighting here. They cut quickly, but he's... I don't know how old this... I mean, this guy's ageless. That's the basic thing. He's playing a younger version of a guy that looks super old in the early 80s. All right, how does this end? So we have Ian McDermott fighting Samuel L. Jackson in the Star Wars movie. Yeah, looking... I mean, he's Nick Fury in all but name. He's got the lightsaber instead of an eye patch. Christensen's performance, I, I will continue to say. I, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm impressed, but I'm a little surprised. And, and they did the right thing, which was realize that his best talent are the emotions that he doesn't have to actually talk about, just like Luke. They had to make him more like Luke, not morally or whatever, but just... Oh, that was tight. The glass. So when the glass breaks and the wind starts going, you'd know someone's going out, you would think. This is exciting. I haven't watched this in a while. Damn. Look at him. He's so evil. Palpatine. You know. And this is the idea, is that an old man could beat a young Jedi. Here comes Anakin. He probably sent something. No, what does Anakin kill? Does, is this where Anakin flips? All right, now he's a helpless old man. They needed someone like Samuel L., even in a small role in this movie. Oh, it's the lightning. Oh, yeah, baby. I totally forgot about this. And what's great is the effect is slightly better in terms of connecting, but... I mean, this is an exact mirror, right? I mean, a Vader watching the Emperor versus Luke and making his decision. But they make it look just like the uh, just like the Return of the Jedi Lightning. Oh, man, look at his face. He's turning old. Oh, is this how they sell that he, you know, turns into looking like he's 150 years old? Pretty good makeup job. Looks like a total uh, <laughs> necromancer, actually. Looks like an evil sorcerer. Must stand trial. After all of this, you're going to put this guy on trial? How powerful? All right, exactly. He's too dangerous. Way overacting, uh, way overacting from Ian McDermott, but he does it great. That's what it calls for. Fits with his character. The eyes now are starting to look like the Emperor's. Oh. Anakin falls for it. And then the lightning. And then they kill him. Yeah. You know, they don't totally sell Anakin's decision there. I guess it's, you know, he talks about not wanting to kill an unarmed 
guy in the very beginning with Duco, and he does it, but he feels bad about it. Maybe that's what it was trying to sell uh, this scene of, you know, even even this guy, you got to put him on trial, not just kill him. So this is the, oh my god, I made an evil decision without realizing it, and so I'm just going to go all out evil, which happens in life all the time. It really does. When you get enough guilt and, and, and anger and confusion and fear and just negativity, and, you know, going back to the good side of things is way harder than just continuing down that path of evil. Right, so this is the part that doesn't quite connect, right? He, he, he reports on Palpatine, he supports arresting him, and then he decides to kill Samuel L. Jackson to save this guy who's clearly manipulating him. And, you know, and now to give himself up for it. Didn't, didn't totally sell for me. But not Christensen's problem. Or not his fault, I should say. Right, so now he's in full slave mode, right? This is like Frodo with the ring, to which this is related. You know, and that's the thing. Now that Palpatine is completely unveiled, he can just completely mind control this guy. And as I hinted before, the whole cheating death thing is, I think, bullshit and just a tool of manipulation. And Palpatine's already saying, well, only one has done it and we'll have to research it. They say Darth Vader. Uh, uh, Darth Vader. So... You know, we're an hour and 16 in, we've got about 45 minutes left, and he's Darth Vader, you know, and now Christensen actually has to, I hate to say it, pretend to act one-dimensional. I mean, he's been very convincing two-dimensional the whole time. Now he has to pretend to do a one, which is the only thing he could do in Attack of the Clones, and now he's having trouble doing it, because you're actually starting to buy the complexity of his character. So... This is the Emperor's music. I wonder if we've heard this so far, the full-on Emperor Palpatine music from Return of Jedi. So, okay, so Darth Vader. So Vader is a Germanic-type uh, word that's related to the word father. And I don't know... I, again, I have to research whether Lucas knew in the very first Star Wars movie, New Hope in 77... Um, whether he knew that, you know, Luke would be the son of Vader, which would make the name Vader, which is close to father, make sense, or whether that was just another happy coincidence. I'll have to research that. I think that was another case of Lucas just throwing balls in the air and getting lucky with them. He certainly didn't know about Luke and Leia being sister, I don't think. Right, and so this is how they sell him now looking as the Emperor mostly looks in Return of the Jedi. So the time jump from here till then, since Luke and Leia are about to be born, is, you know, 18 to 20 years, I think, is the idea. So now he's saying you gotta kill everyone, you gotta be strong with the dark side to save her. But, you know, Anakin's been pretty perceptive in this whole, you know, back and forth as the ping pong ball between the dark Jedi and the and the normal Jedi. And now he's just completely given himself up. I think the problem is, you know, because the love story never connects, even though it's slightly better in this movie, because the love story never connects, his obsession with saving her makes no, Id- you know, it, it makes no uh, real sense 
I mean, even in his own mind, connecting to the Sith ruling the galaxy to saving Padme, I guess he's all mixed up, and that's the point. Alright, here we go. Big battle music. This is what we've all been waiting for. So, Vader does indeed mean father, as it's spelled uh, in Dutch. And Lucas, in the New York Times article, according to this quote here, in 1980, claims he was aware of the fact that it was related to or sounded like Dark Father. Um, So whether he knew Dutch is unclear. He also thought it sounded like Death Water, which would be another explanation of how he ended up being a Vader without knowing the Father connection. Who cares? Here we go. The big battle, you know, we've had so much fighting in this movie, but because of the dramatic problems of the first two, it, it's almost a relief. It's like, well, if you can at least nail the look and feel and action and adventure stuff like here, uh, in terms of the Star Wars universe, then we can live with that. Especially because Christensen does step up his game a little bit, Ewan McGregor keeps stepping up his game. I mean, his game already started strong, gets better. You know, Natalie is barely in this movie. A huge mistake. I mean, this is the problem with the Thor sequels. Is that, uh... Oh, here we go. <laughs> right. right. So, he's he's loyal to Obi-Wan for five seconds, and now he's taking orders. Uh, Order 66, whatever that is, from uh, from the Emperor, from Palpatine. You know, but it's like, if you're going to have Natalie Portman, you got to have her, A, good writer, good writing, B, good director, okay, so that's two things we haven't had here, and C, a very active role in the movie, where even if she's the co-lead or the second lead, is active. She doesn't have to be fighting, she can be doing science-y stuff, like she is in, um, in the first Thor, you know, but again, this is ten years ago. Uh, you know, she was 23, 24. That's a tough age. I mean, Scarlet was famous when she was 18. Uh, did they just kill the Jedi in this? I mean, this is the thing about this movie for PG-13. They kill a ton of good guys, including children. Um, okay, so Order, uh, there's the proto-AT uh, walkers or whatever. Um so they're going world to world and just massacring Jedi, and then Anakin kills a children Jedi. I don't know how they got away with this. PG-13 or otherwise, boom, just kill her. And they're still shooting her on the ground. Yep, great way to show other planets. Yoda can feel it. I mean, the thing is, CGI or not, and, you know, I still wish they'd used a puppet at times. So order right. Order 66 is Murder of the Jedi. Um, it's hard to know how long Palpatine's been around, by the way. It, it could be 100 years. It could be more. You, you know, it, it, right, the X-Wings are shooting the, man, the Jedi ships. You knew the Jedi all had to get killed, but to do it at once like this in a giant conspiracy is... Okay, so these are the exact speeders from Endor. Great callback. Yeah, kill her. Did we see her body? Let me just see the ship blow up. Um, to just do it all at once, you know. But you had to have the Wookiees on this planet. You, you needed one, you know, big civilization of good guys. Now, how does this get resolved? Because now we've got the Wookiees apparently fighting the droids. 
But now the Stormtrooper clones are going to try and kill the... Oh, here we go. I think Yoda kicks ass here. Something happens. You're not going to slip this past Yoda. Boom. Oh my god, he decapitates them. I mean, they're clones, but they're still, you know, people. Um, To get away with this, an 05 for a Star Wars movie. It's interesting to think whether this movie actually would have made more money if it had been less dark. You know, you really, I mean, the first prequel, Phantom Menace, obviously you could take kids to, for the most part. Second one, yes, I would say. This right here, I could not believe this in the theater. And, and in retrospect, you had to do this. This was the, the evilest thing you can do, is kill children knowingly. Now, we don't see him actually murder them, but we, I think we see their bodies later. Now does Natalie, uh, okay, here's C-3PO. Does Natalie put it together at this point? That's the other thing, is, is, oh, she just starts crying. Yeah, this is great. She knows that she fucked up this whole thing. You know, she was blinded by his charisma and whatever. And she should have seen this coming. No one did, though. She knows Anakin's behind it at this point. That connective tissue isn't quite there, but with Natalie's little performance, it sells the whole thing. Oh, this is Organa. So this is Leia's future adoptive father, I believe. Ooh, British accent on the Stormtrooper. Does he do anything here? Or he just runs away? Oh, oh, we got kid Jedis? Do these, these, these kids survive? Look at this kid. Oh, there they kill him. Yeah, you saw him kill a kid. He's slightly older than the little ones. But long enough for him to get away. So it's world building stuff, but that's a good actor, good character. You know. Because in Star Wars A New Hope from 77, it's very strongly implied that you know, Leia and her adoptive family are... are you know, not on board with the Emperor, to say the least. Wow, they packed so much into this movie. I guess they felt like they had to do setting up with the second movie, but they really didn't. Or or they wasted the time they had to set up with the whole stupid Clone Wars. God, the aesthetic of like the clone planet, the all-white thing, is just so bad. You know, you have all the clones look just like brown people. So, you know, they establish a bond with, with Yoda and the Wookiees that we never see again, but, you know, there's not a lot of good guys left at this point. They have they have truly good hearts. Um, the Wookiees do. <laughs> mm. I wonder if Peter Mayhew was in that, that uh, suit... Chewbacca, if that's even a suit. Alright, so Yoda leaves. Is this, That's the last we probably see of him, right? He goes into exile. So, alright, so this is the Corvette that we see Leia. Okay, so this is this is purposeful, you know. So this is Leia's future adoptive father flying in the Corvette that she's fleeing in from the Star Destroyer at the very, very, very beginning of the original Star Wars. Uh, you know, that's the ship of their planet, Alderaan, or whatever it is. I forgot that they set up the whole uh, or- Organa, you know, Senator Organa, Leia Organa thing. 
The practical ships look much better. Great movement there. Boom. You know, the only thing is you're hoping for a twist of some sort because you know where this plot is going. We've known where it's been going since the first minute of The Phantom Menace. Oh, here's Senator again. Right, so this this is the whole thing. So Obi-Wan's the one who decides to give Leia to this guy and then to bring um, Luke to Tatooine. And the unanswered question is, why would Vader not look to Tatooine? Uh, considering that Anakin is from Tatooine. Okay, so now he hasn't put it together yet. Did they do the reveal? Again, half-truths. He learned well from his master, Palpatine. Oh, Anakin. What are you going to do? You can't have Nellie Portman be damsel in distress. She's too smart. She went to fucking Harvard. You know, I mean, have you ever heard her interviewed or whatever? I mean, she's, this just isn't her character. She's as beautiful as she is. She's more girl next door than princess. And when they tried to make her a, you know, a princess in the Henry VIII movie with Eric Bana, the other Boleyn girl, which I liked better than some, just because of that Nellie and, you know, Scarlet fighting for the same guy. Eric Bana was okay. She's just not great in that role. Make her super smart, but more relatable. She's so easily manipulated here. Is he using force powers? Who knows? So the, you know, Mustafar system, I guess that's where the lava planet is coming from. Wait for me, right? It's like uh, Ava telling Caleb, will you wait for me? After he uh, uh, <laughs> concocts her escape of an ex machina, and he goes, sure, yeah, just, sure, I'll wait for you. Boop. She locked the door on him. And he eventually is going to die in that bunker as she leaves. Yeah. I mean, Nellie has the look of a princess, obviously. It's just not her personality. It's not. If you watch her in Thor for three seconds, okay, the Corvette looks great. They do make it look different. It's a little bit more compact with a huge engine on the back. It's a little bit longer and sleeker and, and, and uh, a new hope. I love both designs. You know, that's the thing. It's not just about character or plot connective tissue. It's about the connective tissue of aesthetics. And this is the exact aesthetic of the opening Princess Leia scene in A New Hope. They start it with the X-Wing designs a little bit. Obviously, the Stormtroopers. They're setting up all that stuff. The Canary Fighters from the first movie. And, you know, and, and the droid Starfighters just look so stupid. But the big capital ships are fantastic. In fact, you know, you do have the Super Star Destroyer and Empire and Return of the King. But other than that, it's just Star Destroyers. And what's great is in the X-Wing and TIE Fighter space simulation games that I'm always talking about from the early 90s, you play with a joystick on your computer. It's like a fighter plane in space. You're flying X-Wings, you're flying TIE Fighters. The Empire and the Rebel Alliance have so many more ships. In fact, in the final Return of the Jedi battle, we saw... 
at least three, four, five, six different types of capital ships, all of which appear in those games. But the, but the Empire, too, has more than just Star Destroyers. Okay, here's the Lava Planet. Uh, I'm curious to see how I feel about this. And back to the Trade Federation. <laughs> I can't believe they're still in it at this point. Um, unlike Jar Jar, you couldn't really write them out once you had the initial script, um, or at least uh, uh, plot ideas for uh, for the trilogy. It all hinges on them being manipulated by multiple forces, even while even while they think they're doing the manipulation. All right, here we go. Got the Corvette. I guess we're headed back to Coruscant. So we've got Yoda, Obi-Wan, and Senator Organa, the adoptive, future adoptive father of Leia. It's possible Obi-Wan and uh, Yoda are both thinking this. The continuity of Organa being one of the most, if not the most, uh, trustworthy senators is certainly, that. I mean, that continuity is perfect with the original trilogy. Yeah, cool little side character to bring in, especially because he does play a huge part, albeit off screen, in you know Leia's whole whole story in the first planet. Okay, here's the here is the lava planet, looking pretty good. This looked good in the theater. Now I think I remember from the theater that when they're sort of on the lava rocks fighting, that even then it looked a little green screeny. So we'll see. As I mentioned, after seeing movies like The Hobbit and even Avatar, which came later, had bigger budgets, supposedly better technology, I- I've forgiven some of the CGI stuff in the prequel movies. Not so much Attack of the Clones, but the first one and this one. R2's got to be there. R2's always the, uh, you know, R2's the observer. R2's the audience in a weird way. You know, you, you never have to question R2's morality and the... The fact that droids have an innate morality that is almost always pure good. Again, Isaac Asimov, we won't go there. So now they already know he's Lord Vader. Was he going to kill all these guys too? The capital is on fire. Maybe that's not the capital. Yeah, so many planets, it gets lost. Yeah, okay, they are back on Coruscant. The temple's burning. Yeah, that that was the best long shot of the the temple that we've seen. Yoda's fighting looks amazing, and that's why I have no problem with him being CGI. It would just look inconsistent if you go puppet CGI, puppet CGI. Back to the you know hive like pod filled uh, Senate. So Organa had to run away, and now he's back. Maybe Organa was on a different planet. Maybe Arcana was on a different planet, and there happened to be a Jedi kid there. Right. Okay, here we go. We got the dead bodies and the dead children. Had to see this. Right. Yep, they can tell. Killed by lightsaber. Yoda doesn't even need visual confirmation. He knows what's going on. Yeah, Obi-Wan still... I guess they had to get Obi-Wan away from Coruscant semi-early in this movie so that he wasn't around for the, the 
you know, Flip to the Dark Side by Anakin. <laughs> Sorry if some of these points are obvious. I haven't watched this in a while. There's more, you know, interesting plot and character stuff in this movie than the first two combined by far. Right, no, no one's questioning this guy suddenly looking <laughs> like an evil bad guy that's a thousand years old. The voice is different. You know, it's a great planet. Create a fake war and then become a war leader. I mean, we see this all the time. I won't name names. George Bush. Netanyahu. Sorry. Oop. Anakin's got the eyes. I don't remember that. Does he keep the orange eyes? I'm not sure they needed that visual cue, but it works for me. The Galactic Empire. Here we are. And this is the thing. I mean, this movie has twists with, within the subplots, but you know where this is going the whole time. And even though I would have maybe gone a different direction in terms of more red herrings and misdirects from the audience's perspective... Lucas decided to make everyone in the movie be totally naive, even while we've known all the time, you know, we've known the whole time, um, you know, from the beginning of the first prequel, what's really going on, but... Bam, kills him. Yep, they used the Trade Federation the whole time, now you can't have any witnesses. Ooh, I like this, I forgot this little... Uh, information center. What's the recalibration? This is cool. You know, nice physical computer bank. Yeah, the lighting and the colors, just everything is so much better than the second. I don't know if I'll release the second. I sort of have to. I'm releasing the other five. Right, Yoda knows already where this is headed. I wonder when Yoda knew. I mean, in some ways he's always known. From a general sense that the dark side was a possibility for Anakin, but I wonder when Yoda fully picked up on it. Probably when he saw the dead kids. I can't watch anymore. Right. Unfortunately, it takes Luke Skywalker many years later to destroy the Sith, but that is okay. Yeah, he doesn't have the stomach for it. Oh, right. So Obi-Wan goes after Anakin, I think, and Yoda goes after Sidious, I believe. Yeah, anything with Yoda and Obi-Wan... From both a character and a narrative standpoint, in full continuity with the the original trilogy, as bad as the whole Clone War setup was in, in Episode Two, it doesn't even matter at this point. Here's the thing: this this is what I realized. Well, I just took a break. <laughs> you can watch just this in the original trilogy, and it works perfectly. You know, you don't need the whole build up with Anakin and the princess and Obi Wan. I mean, you do miss Qui-Gon the first movie. The one highlight from, from a personality standpoint, obviously, is Liam Neeson as Qui-Gon. But in the future, I think I might watch this first and then go to the original trilogy and just skip episodes one and two. It is interesting. You know, Lucas finally got it mostly right here, even though the writing is off. 
Um, and then, you know, it's 10 years later and he sold the property and not clear what kind of input he has into it. Now, JJ Abrams, who's writing and directing episode seven was, um, you know, I mean, it is an admitted huge star Wars nerd since childhood. And so, you know, you don't even need a lot of Lucas input because JJ is going to be true because that's just his natural instinct with this thing. I mean, J.J. managed to be relatively true to Star Trek, even. The tone and pace was way different than most Star Trek movies, but even though he you know, openly said he didn't grow up with Star Trek, he managed to tap into it, so Star Wars should not be a problem. Right, the whole I can't believe it. That's, you know, not only does Natalie get nothing to do, but they make her totally naive, not very perceptive. She fell for Palpatine, she fell for Anakin... When do they announce that she's pregnant? Does that happen in episode two? I can't remember. She looks great. Of course, Kent looks great. Oh, they didn't know that Anakin impregnated her? Right, I'm so sorry. I'm going to go kill your lover. She doesn't even try and stop him once she learns everything. Yeah, biggest biggest waste in this movie. Really the only major flaw, just taking it on its own. And with the prequels, is they just didn't know what to do with Natalie. So there's death everywhere. All the people Anakin killed... Still not clear how they end up on the lava planet. I guess this is where the Trade Federation was based, right? Sorry if that was obvious. He's crying. Yep, Christensen steps up. He does. That's a great shot. Might have, you know, may have taken a while to get that shot and to get him crying in that face, but they get it. That's a great shiny ship. I really come on board with the shiny ships um, from the prequel trilogy. You know, you need you needed to continually stress that while the technology is not more advanced, the civilizations were from an aesthetic standpoint. You know, I mean, it, it it's not just the evil dictatorship of the empire in the original trilogy, but the, you know the. Aesthetics, the oppressiveness of the aesthetics. It's white and black, sharp points, faceless soldiers. Wait, so what? Is Padme flying to to Anakin and, and Obi-Wan's hitching a ride? I totally missed that. This is a beautiful shot. They really nailed Coruscant in this movie. So, J.J. Abrams was born in 66, which means not only is he going on his 50th birthday, which still makes him young these days, but he was 11 when the first Star Wars came out, he was 14 when Empire came out, and 17 when Jedi came out. So, you know, he is the exact age to have fallen in love with it. Actually, he may have been a little bit quote-unquote old, but... Everyone fell in love with the original Star Wars, but if you're 11 in 1977, I mean, I could only imagine what that would have been like. 
you know, the Star Trek, uh, the Star Trek TV series was in the sixties while JJ was, you know, just born or unborn. Um, and so, you know, and the movies didn't start until the late seventies, I don't believe. So it would make sense, especially just given his preference for sort of high action adventure over techno babble that JJ would have fallen in love with this instead of Star Trek. For me, it's been mute. Oh, here's the, uh, this is beautiful. So when when they do the um, Padme, uh, Anakin music, and it's just way over the top in terms of swelling strings, it, it's melodramatic, but the understated theme is so beautiful, right? They're trying to get her involved here. You know, like somehow she can she can turn him. I guess she has to be there when he dies or almost dies. I can't even remember if they think he's dead or not. What things? Yeah, they're both worse when they're with each other. Like, the better parts of their performances are always with other people. I, I wonder if they just really dislike each other. I almost don't want to know the full story about this. All right, only my new powers can save you. You know, (laughs) one thing that The Matrix does well, I think, in the sequels uh, in particular, is that Neo's visions of the future, they're never wrong, they're just incomplete. He sees Trinity dying, but as he says, he doesn't actually see her die. He sees the things leading to the machine city where he has to go to, you know, plug in and the Godhead, whatever, fight Smith, but he doesn't know the full implications. It would be more interesting if his vision was wrong or not totally true. Right? He's already talking about overthrowing the guy that he's sworn to serve. He, he really is just a, a low-grade Franco. I do like that she she does see through it, and it's not his words, it's his attitude. And they also should have tied this to his childhood, I think. That's the whole point of the first movie, you're breaking my heart. Yeah. It's like, Sam, don't go where I can't follow, Mr. Frodo. I mean, Natalie's acting her ass off right here. Great shot. Uh-oh, there's Obi-Wan. I love you. Liar. All right. It was unclear whether she knew Obi-Wan was on that ship. I don't think she knew. Oh, she starts killing her. Wow. Yeah. And this is why they cast Hayden Christensen to be a psycho. Right here, that view. Uh, that view of him. They cast him to be a psycho. And so when you're trying to buy him as a good guy, you just can't. The music here is great. I mean, it has to be epic, but they're still restrained. Okay, here we go. There's a ship. There's a fire planet. All right, he tried to kill her. Now don't take her from me. 
Yeah, I remember watching this in the theater. Because you're waiting for three movies for this to happen. I think we know that Obi-Wan was the one who, you know, temporarily defeats him. You know, their, their relationship is more than a little implied in the first trilogy, in the original trilogy, to say the least. All right, here's the speech. I'll try not to talk too much. You have to have the talk before the fight. Freedom, justice, security to my new empire. What is he fighting for? It's not even clear. I guess that's the point. Right, democracy. Is this, oh, you're not with me, you're against me? Then you're my enemy. Right, but okay. So, you know, Lucas may be, you know, greedy and sort of a control freak or whatever, but he's a very liberal, progressive guy. He does believe in true democracy. And that line there in this whole series talks about, you know, what was going on in the Bush administration. I think, you know, he was already headed to that path with the first movie in 99 when Clinton was still president. But, you know, as I mentioned before, Adolf Hitler was elected. There were four parties. He only got 30% of the vote, but he still won. So, uh, not a bad CGI transition there with the kick. Oh, yeah, Yoda just knocks these guys over. This is great. Because you knew the Obi-Wan-Anakin thing was coming, but did not know that this was happening. This is so great. Darth Sidious. Still calls him Master Yoda. Yeah, the full power of the dark side, right from Return of the Jedi. Boom. Yeah, the lightning powers. It's interesting that's the one physical manifestation that we ever see from Jedi as lightning powers. I, you know, that's to distinguish him as a dark, a dark Jedi, I suppose. All right, here's the lightsaber battle. Had to nail this. And they also cast Hayden Christensen because he's an athletic-looking dude and definitely an athletic dude. Knew how to do this stuff. That's the thing. This sells the emotion more than anything they just said two minutes ago. And that's what's so brilliant about the lightsaber battles is the amount of, you know, I mean, with guns, you just shoot someone, they're dead. With sword fights, lightsaber battles, you can have a lot going on. So he hates Yoda. Unclear whether he hates Yoda in particular or just as the head of the Jedi Order. Who cares? Whoa, oh man, Yoda. Woo, hits the chair. Nice one. Boom. So, of course, you know, this doesn't accomplish anything, but you had to have Yoda at least try and take on this guy. Yeah, it's funny, you know, with Yoda with the lightsaber, it's as big as him, but so when a normal person holds it, it looks tiny next to him. Faith, faith in the dark side. Not sure, oh, that's the uh, Falcona from the Kingdom of Heaven. 
uh, an old school medieval way of fighting where you hold a sword above your head. Very effective for attack, but you gotta be super fast. Alright, so you have to splice the two scenes with the four main characters, the two main good guys, two main bad guys. Yeah, not much to say here. This is really well executed, honestly. I mean... You know... It's, uh... <laughs> You know, I mean, if you go Mortensen as Aragorn has great sword fighting stuff, usually it's in battle, but when he does, like, fight the head of the Orokai or whatever in Fellowship, does a great job. Now, they keep that way more minimalist than this, obviously. This was a great uh, notion to have the central pod move up. I'm not clear why it's not hovering. Um, and, you know, and this is directly related to Yoda being able to lift the X-Wing relatively easily out of the swamp, and Luke saying, I don't believe it. And and Yoda saying, you know, that is where you fail. Right, there's the spin the sword everywhere trick. That's the thing with light swords even more than sabers. Oh, right, the two force powers going at each other. Uh, their hands are almost touching. Boom. Yeah, that's a little Smith Neo stuff where they punch each other and each go flying back like a thousand miles. What's going on here? The lava's coming up. So why is this all of a sudden become unstable? Uh... That's uh, a little convenient, you know. Right, they nail the walking through the halls, various doors, and now we got to get to the lava. Here we are. But um, yeah. I mean, this is this is as good as you could have asked for on paper. I, I, you know, I, I think part of the reason this movie did relatively well, money wise, <laughs> was because a it is very rewatchable, but it, you know. In terms of a first watching, you're going, oh my god, this is like so far superior to the two that came before it. You know, we knew that that these fights were coming, or at least the Obi Wan fight with Anakin, but it is just spectacular, and that's why this movie is directly into Episode Four, and why this is a standalone, as far as I can tell. Oh, here's right. This is actually the more direct X Wing comparison. He's holding the pod, spinning it around, and Yoda is serious when he has to lift heavy objects. But, uh, you know, it, it's not that much of a strain. I mean, he's very just focused. You know, size doesn't matter. That's the whole point of Yoda's character. Uh-oh, the lightning. There goes the lightsaber. Wow, look at this filming. They must have been working on this while doing episode two. I, I don't know what they thought they were doing with episode two. Yeah, the the, the reflection of the lightning in the face of the Emperor... Awesome. Boom. Another power blast. Yeah, this was a big challenge for John Williams, obviously. You know, because, well, there are three separate plot lines. Uh-oh, Yoda Falls. Well, there are three separate plot lines spliced together in the final extended battle of Return of the Jedi. When it's actually on Luke, Vader, and the Emperor, they stay on it for a long time. Musically, you need to make the transitions between this scene and this scene. All right, here we go. They had to draw this out. I mean, really no way around it. Did R2 just fall off the cliff there? I don't think so. 
So, you know, it's not totally clear if if Lucas had a specific vision as to how Darth Vader became his deformed self and required the bodysuit. This is sort of the fastest way through two... This is sort of the fastest way between two points. Oh, just make it lava. It works. Organa's still in it. Yeah, Organa's... It's the thing. Organa's here at, at the beginning of the Rebellion. Just as the Empire begins, so too does the Rebellion. So Princess Leia comes to it honestly. That's for sure. Oh, he goes after Vader? So, you know, the whole idea is, in terms of the good Jedi, you have to control your feelings. But giving in to fear and emotion and hatred can make you physically stronger. And in fact, you know, Luke's uh, defeat of Vader, he obviously doesn't go on to kill him, and then Vader saves him, um... Luke is channeling anger that he doesn't even realize or have control over at the time. And so, in order for Obi-Wan to win this fight, he has to have some emotion. And that's this whole unresolved part of the Star Wars mythos in terms of the philosophy is that, yes, the Buddhist ideal of being, you know, desireless and, and not letting your, you know, baser emotions rule you and that that will make you stronger... But Star Wars is not consistent on that point, and I think it's inconsistent on purpose. I give Lucas credit for that. You know, the lack of philosophical exposition in the prequels, while disappointing, um, I think was intentional on Lucas's part. Again, as I've mentioned, with the political themes being um, more of the central focus, I guess. And, you know, in Taoism, they just say, if you say too much, you're already moving away from reality. You're just playing language games, as Wittgenstein said. So, there's so much internal feeling and, you know, mental processes going on in these various Jedi that you just have to assume is happening. All right, here's the lava. Looks good. Actually, that green screen looks nice with the lava below him. Swinging out there. Little Pirates of the Caribbean action. Yeah, Obi-Wan almost looks like he's having fun. And boom. You're right. Oh, yeah. So this is what I was talking about. What are these floating things? Why now is this planet collapsing? Totally unclear. Yeah, I mean, you don't really have to worry about color gradients because this is so intense. Um, I wonder if they did use some filters while filming to make them look more orange or whether they just uh, CGI'd it later. It Do does appear to have some some orange lighting going um, in terms of the, 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 the set that they're fighting on right now with green screen. This actually looks really good. This looks better than I remember. Again, with hindsight... This, <laughs> yes, I have held you. He has to take responsibility. You know, I mean, yeah, it's not really the only mistake Obi Wan made was, you know, following Qui Gon's lead and trying to train this kid. 
that's the failure. And there's not much else he could have done in terms of the training. And it, there's not much failure in terms of the training itself, I don't think. Still calling him my master, even though he has a new master. There you go. A little Jedi jumping. Wow, that was a nice uh, CGI shot, you know. I mean, they showed CGI Anakin flipping. Maybe they really flipped him. I don't know. Good close-ups right when you need it. Boom. Hard to talk during this. You know, all visual candy. This fight would be gratuitously long. I have the high ground. Yeah, he means a few things by the high ground. Does Obi-Wan. It would be gratuitous, but, you know, after the original three movies and even the three prequels, you had to have this go on for as long as possible because this is, this is it. This is it. And they've packed so much action and drama already and even before this fight starts. Did he just cut off his arm? Looks like <laughs> not doing a great job of hiding the actual arm. You were the chosen one. Nope, no he wasn't. So here's, this is like Morpheus coming to terms with the false prophecy, only to realize later that the prophecy is true, it's just not the way that he was interpreting it. Yeah. The prophecy here is about Anakin's child. It's about, the prophecy here is about, is about Luke and even Leia, the children of Anakin, not about Anakin himself. He's the chosen one to give birth to the real chosen ones. You are my brother. Yeah, and they had to make them close enough in age, looks-wise. I loved you. This is great. You and McGregor, they're both just acting their asses off right now. You know, you and McGregor's letting this happen, the slow death. Like, what's worse, just going in for the full kill or letting him die slowly and painfully? Um, you know, the burning is, is a mirror of... The burial scene at the end of Return of the Jedi where Luke is burning Vader's body and suit. You know, he, now he totally doesn't look like Hayden Christensen. They had to make it look like the dude whose face we see behind Vader's mask, not James Earl Jones' voice, obviously, had to look like the weirdly shaped and burned face of, uh, of Vader behind the mask at, at the very end of Return of the Jedi. Did a good job there. You know, that he would leave him and just think that he's dead. I don't know. Who knows? That, I mean, it's movies, people. You gotta do it. So does Natalie die because of the childbirth, or she dies because of Anakin almost killing her? <laughs> you almost want these two to get together, especially because they have much better chemistry. And he'd be a much better dad, to say the least. Man, is Natalie Portman easy to look at. I mean, she's not even in my top few just in terms of my personal favorite female actresses, but she is stunning in a very somehow relatable way. I don't know what it is about her. Unlike Scarlett, who just is like a, you know, is like a goddess. You just can't relate to her physically. Right, so he's burned up, and he's got the mechanical hand. I think he lost his other arm. This is a great image. So yeah, uh, you know, I, I hinted before that I was looking for the end part of that whole battle in terms of the, the CGI green screen set stuff going on in the middle of the lava, but it looks seamless. Watching on a computer, have to watch on the big screen, but 
It looks pretty damn good. Here comes the shuttle, and this is the uh, the Imperial shuttle, um, or the prototype of the Imperial shuttle that I love the design. It so simple, so effective that they use in um, in the original trilogy. He's still alive. Maybe Obi Wan just didn't foresee, you know, Sidious actually coming after him. You know, Sidious we've seen has the ability to cloud the minds of the Jedi, so I guess that would be my interpretation. And here's the thing, he'd already fallen under the Emperor's spell, but now for very physical and practical reasons, he's dependent on the Emperor for his survival. You know, he, he, Palpatine's his savior. Alright, so, is that it for Anakin and, and, uh, and the Emperor? This is who's left of the Jedi. Are, are they... Is it just Yoda and Obi-Wan at this point? Are all the others killed? Or are they just all spread out? I think I might have missed earlier in the computer room with Obi-Wan and Yoda that they were telling the remaining Jedi to flee and hide. You know. And uh, you know, we know that Vader has spent the time between now and the New Hope, which is about 20 years internally to, to this chronology, hunting down the remaining Jedi, and that Obi-Wan and Yoda are the only two. He had been unable to hunt down, I suppose. So here are the proto-TIE fighters. There's the sh the shuttle with the folding wings. Already starting to look like the Empire. Rain and Coruscant, they make this look great. Right, there's the, the Neo-Burial uh, hover, hover tomb or whatever you want to call it. They do the smart thing here and uh, not do too much up close on the face. Because even if it looked good, it would be disgusting or just seem over the time. Oh, this is what I hated. Right, she dies of a broken heart. Oh, God. She's lost the will to live that a robot could sense that medically. Yeah, I did not like that choice. It, it should have just been her, you know, basically almost being killed by Anakin and living just long enough to deliver it. That That would have been you know, the easier way to get there, and, and I think just more, you know, more believable. This woman, I mean, that's the thing. They totally disempowered Natalie's character. She's naive. She's kind of weak, you know, not particularly smart. Yeah, here's the Frankenstein stuff. So there's the medical bot that we see in Empire right there. So this is the, uh, you know... The birth of Jim Kirk kind of thing at the beginning of a uh, of the Star Trek reboot, the the pain of death of the father and the, the the agony of birth and the joy. So that's a real baby, I think. Now it's CGI. Children of Men that has the best CGI. Uh, Children of Men has the best CGI baby ever. They had to because they had to show you the really the baby coming out and the umbilical cord and everything. They didn't even try and go real in that movie. They freaking nailed it. Probably to spend a fortune on their low budget. Yeah, see, these, these CGI babies are a little shiny, but who cares? Leia, Luke, Leia, no explanation. Twins, boom. That, that Anakin wouldn't know that there were two. I'm still not clear about that. This is great. We've always wanted to see that. Yeah, and they deformed his head completely like the guy who's behind Vader's mask in Return of the Jedi. 
and they, you know, they scuff up Vader's suit a little bit in the original trilogy, and part of that's just practical effects. I mean, that's just going to happen. But it makes sense that it was super shiny here. But it's such an expensive, powerful suit. I want, you know, does he have other suits? We know that he can go out of the suit briefly in his recharge pod, or his breathing pod. So this is it. This is the whole setup. So there's good in him. So right. So Padme is passing this to Obi Wan, who passes it to Luke, who believes it to be true and brings out the good side. After many more hours of Star Wars, see all of this would work dramatically exactly the same and be even better if it wasn't just dying of a broken heart. I just have her die from the childbirth or or, or from Anakin strangling her or whatever. So here he is. Darth Vader. Greatest sci-fi villain ever. Not the deepest. And as I hinted before, you know, despite Aiden Christensen stepping up somewhat in the third movie and the writing getting better, it's not... It doesn't ultimately make Vader any more multidimensional than he already is in the original trilogy, but that's okay. So he still cares about Padme. Oh, right. The Palpatine lies that he killed her. Okay, that's why they had to do the misdirect there with the dying of a broken heart. You know, this is like, it's like the Scarlet Witch, which she senses that her brother Quicksilver is dead, causes pure rage, and informs that that anger going forward. No. (laughs) Oh, man. All right, here we go. Okay, so this has to be Alderaan, right? This is... This is Senator Organa's planet where Leia is raised. Here we go. Right. Right. Hide the kids. So you give one to to an openly rebellious senator and the other to Tatooine where Anakin's from. Yeah, you have to explain why they wanted the girl. Whatever. They'll take the girl. Right, so, I mean, like, Vader's not going to look and tattooing for the family. But, you know, I, I am a believer in the hiding in plain sight thing, even in real life. It's so gutsy to bring Luke back to tattooing that, uh, you know, someone like Vader wouldn't think it'd be that obvious. Training. What's this? He's having a... Oh, they're just discovering immortality? Oh, interesting. So after thousands of years, Qui-Gon figures out how to materialize. So I guess the uh, the holographic Qui-Gon that we may or may not see coming up is the one who ends up training. Um, Captain Antilles, that's Young Wedge right there. Oh, that's great. Oh, they, right, they wipe their brains. They got to do it. They can't know everything. You know, it's just too dangerous. They would never give up the information willingly, but um, but uh, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, as far as a long epilogue goes, right, here's the, the semi-Viking funeral-looking thing. This looks somewhat similar to the death and burial of Theodred. <laughs> There's Jar Jar, who they took out completely. Um, looks like the death and burial and funeral of Theodred, son of Theoden King in the Two Towers, which was a cut scene that was restored in the, in the extended edition. It's one of the best restored scenes. Look at her. She looks so gray and blue. <laughs> she looks great in everything. Yeah, she looks like an elf here, the way she's dressed. It would have been cool if she ended up having force powers, too, and that's why Luke and Leia are so powerful. Maybe that's implied. Who fucking knows? Yep, now here's the shot on the Death Star. That everyone's dressed already. So, you know, we're assuming that there's many, many months of a time jump in the last couple minutes. Oh, they're already building the first Death Star. So this is actually jumping, like, probably, like, 15, 20 years in this last scene here. In fact, um, they're doing, in addition to a new trilogy, they're doing spinoff movies that take place mostly in in, in the past, quote-unquote, in terms of like from this time or right after this time or during the original trilogy. And the first spinoff in 2016 is called Rogue One. And it's about the rebels who discover the plan for the uh, Death Star. And so this timing just doesn't make total sense because there's 20 years between. Um, but that should be a really cool movie. If they have finally a lead female character. I guess we get in episode seven too um, with... Uh, with Daisy Ridley, but Felicity Jones is, I think, the head of the Rogue Squadron or whatever, the the espionage rebels who find out about the plans for the first Death Star. That should be an amazing spinoff movie because it has so much less uh, ground to cover and is a story that we know happened but don't know anything about, sort of like the prequels, but, you know, with less... uh, um, not lower stakes, but it, it's going to be epic in terms of its filmmaking and such. But it, it's such a specific tale. I guess that's the idea of these spinoffs. All right, here's giving Luke to Aunt... Uh, what the hell's her name? Aunt and Uncle. Oh, she's pretty. She looks familiar. All right, are we going to see the two moons? Yep, there it is. Or the two, sorry, the two suns. With the force music. Giving me chills right now. Oh, man. God, is that gorgeous. The semi-holy birth. Whew. Forest music. The full swell of the forest music just gives me chills every time. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. As you can tell from my commentary, I'm very praiseworthy of this movie. I'm very praiseworthy of this movie. Um... It's clearly the best. It's really the best. You know, even if you combine the best parts of the first and second, this is still by far the best. And this should be the prequel. You know, it should have been just this movie. They could have done a tiny bit at the beginning with young Anakin and jumped straight to this. It would have all made sense. Did not need, you know, even two movies, certainly not three. So this one's definitely good enough to for rewatches in the future when I really want to go all at it with the series. So I hope you enjoyed that. I'm very excited about the new Star Wars movies. If you're listening to this, I assume you are as well. I don't know when this will come out. As of now, it's late September 2015. The movie comes out 
December 18, 2015. It will be between now and then. Um, I'll probably release them. No, I'm definitely going to release them in the order of actual release. So I start with New Hope, then Empire, then Return of the Jedi, then Phantom Menace, then Attack of the Clothes, if I can stomach actually releasing that one, and then this one. So I hope you enjoyed all of them, if you made it this far. Ah, Jimmy Smith. Yeah, that's who plays uh, Senator Orgetta. Oh, that's great. That's Jimmy Smith. I knew he was familiar. And uh, may the force be with you. Bizzle out.